Good evening, and today we are going to be tackling one of the most difficult questions out there, and that is, can I be a good person without being a religious person? Right? What is a religion? What's a, ah, there we go. I meet this right away going with a punch. What is a religious person? So I'll come back and say, what is a good person? Right? You have to know what we're talking about in order to, um, in order to be able to answer the question. So let me just put this out there, okay? I'm just going to be very simple, straight to the point. What I mean about being a good person, what I mean is someone who doesn't steal, doesn't kill, is honest in business, is just, you know, good. Good to people. Just the type of guy that you could trust with money, right? That's, that's what I mean, a good person. I'm not talking about the guy that's going to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and drive you to the airport. That's an uber good person. That's, you know, I, I meant it with the pun intended. Right? That's like really, you know, really a good person. What I mean a good person is someone that you could simply, you know, not be worried if you're going to see him in a dark alley in the middle of the night. You don't have to worry for, you You know, have to look behind your back. Someone that you're going to give him a loan, you know he's going to pay you back. Someone that uh, if you know that if he's going to find your wallet, he'll, he'll return it to you. I mean, that's the type of goodness morality I'm talking about. What do I mean by religious? So we're going to focus on Jews, right? What do I mean by religious? I mean, literally keeping the Torah as it should be, right? Keeping Shabbos, keeping kosher, learning Torah, putting on tefillin, mezuzahs, you know, religious. So the big question out there is, is it possible to be a good person without being a religious person? Is it possible to be a religious person without being a good person? Now, the fact of the matter is, we do find... The two, the, these two sides, you find very good people who are not religious. You'll find people that are very religious and they're just not good people. I would advise you not to lend them money. I would advise you not to invest with them, right? But what do you mean? He's so religious. So what? <laughs> so what? Now, so the question is, is it possible to have one without the other? Or, or in better, better yet, is one sustainable without the other? That's, that's really the question that we're going to get at today. So, uh, why are we going to talk about that today? Because this week's Parsha is um, a very foundational Parsha, a very foundational story, um, the story of the giving of the Torah. Parsha is Yisrael. Yisrael was Moshe's father-in-law. How ironic that Moshe's greatest claim to fame, right? that's his, that's his great, greatest claim to fame is that he was the messenger, the prophet through which Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, happened at Sinai. How ironic that the portion of the Torah that, that records this story, it's called his father-in-law's name and not his. <laughs> Wouldn't it make more sense? They should be called the parish of Moshe. It's called the parish of Yisrael. Still in the family. Still in the family, you're saying. Okay, fine. So, um, but today we're going to focus on a different part of the parish. We're going to go straight to the, the crown jewel of the parish of the Ten Commandments. Okay. All right, what are the Ten Commandments? Let's get a, a, a little, you know, let's brush up on the Ten Commandments here. Uh, so source number one on page one. Oh, now they call it page one. It used to be called page three. God spoke all these words to respond. Yeah, there's there's oof, thousands and thousands of, of pages written on this to respond. But anyway, we'll skip that for now. God spoke all these words to respond. I am God, your God. I'm God, your Lord, who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of your bondage. You shall not have any other gods. So that's number one, right? Belief in one God, belief in God. You shall not have any other gods in my presence. Do not make for yourself a graven image. This is highly redacted. <laughs> it was shortened a bit just to give us the main point. Um, right, we're not allowed to serve any other gods. Do not take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet. All right. Here we've got what many want to call the Big Ten. Right, the Ten Commandments. What is specific? What it, in other words, what's unique about these ten? These ten were communicated to the Jewish people in a very dramatic setting. The six, all 613 commandments were communicated to the Jewish people through Moses. Ten of the 613 were communicated in their presence. Okay? Now, some of them were communicated from God directly to the Jewish people. But before getting into those 
into, the, into those details. Just here's the basic idea. 603 commandments of the Torah, the Jewish people did not witness, were not party to the divine communication to Moses. It, wherever he had the communication, he had the communication. Moses came to us and told us whatever God told him. Specifically, on the 6th of Sivan, 50 days after leaving Egypt, the Jewish people stood at Sinai and, and they experienced and witnessed God say prophecy to Moses. Fine? And, and, this, and God told Moses, when, he, you know, when, he, when God was giving him the job of being the leader of the Jewish people, the prophet, etc., you know, what, you know what's the first thing Moses said? They won't trust me. They're smart. They, they know what's going on, right? They're, they're going to have that cynicism, that, that doubt, which is only natural. How do you know this guy is a real thing or just a farce? How do you know that he's a prophet? And God said, I, I, I know the problem. And therefore, one time, only once in history, there's going to be an event where millions of Jews, all the Jewish people are going to be there. As the Medrash tells us, that the souls of all the Jewish people that ever lived beforehand and whoever will live from then until the end of days. We're there at Sinai and we witnessed, experienced, whatever you want to call it. We, we basically understood. We're able, we're able to intuitively experience the fact that Moses is actually hearing God speak to him. And when Moses comes and says a communication from God, it is coming from God. That's what's unique about these ten. Now, how many of these ten did we hear God say? Did God say to us? Well, what's going on over here? So Rashi, right away, it says, and God, so on the first verse, on the introduction to the Ten Commandments, so it says over there, God spoke all these words to respond. Kol hadvarim ha'ila. All of these words. Why does have to say that? Why didn't he just say, and God said, I am God your God, you shouldn't have any idols, you should not take my name in vain. All ten. Why does, the, why does the Torah have to like emphasize God spoke all these words? So Rashi says, this teaches that God spoke all the Ten Commandments in one utterance. You'll say, what? That's exactly the point. Something that a human cannot do. It's impossible for you to say a sentence in one word, let alone an entire chapter in one word. Here, Rashi is telling us that all Ten Commandments were uttered in one utterance. Fine. Why then is it necessary to state, I am your God and you shall not have any other gods in my presence? If it was said in one utterance, so why is it mapped out? Why is it articulated as ten separate mitzvahs, ten separate communications? Because then God repeated each commandment individually. So right away at the beginning, first God, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but God said, and somehow all the words of the Ten Commandments were uttered in one utterance. We all heard that from God. And by the way, the introduction here is not that God spoke to Moses and Moses told us. God spoke to who? To you and to me. To all of us, to all the Jewish people that were there. What was the first thing God said? All Ten Commandments, boom, in one utterance. What's the problem? We probably didn't really understand it. But we heard it. We heard it all in one utterance. Then it had to be repeated. Repeated in a way that the human mind can absorb. So now what happened with the repetition? Here, let's, uh, let's go to the Chizkuni. was another great uh, Torah a commentator on page 2. Initially, God spoke them in one utterance and the Jews didn't understand. The repetition of them teaches us that each one was then explained individually so that they would understand. But who said them individually? The first two, I am God, your God, and you shall not have any other gods, were repeated and explained by God himself. But the people couldn't handle hearing from God directly. And that's why right after the Ten Commandments are mentioned in the Torah, there's this whole conversation that happens there. And that the Jewish people, they come to Moses and say, we're, we're going to die. This, this is not, we can't deal with this. 
let God speak to you and you tell us what God said. So the tradition is that the first two they heard from God himself. And then the, the, the rest of the eight, it was Moses who gave over the, the information. Uh, this idea is based off a very interesting concept. Let's just finish here. They asked for Moses to speak instead, lest God speak to us and we die. Fine. Um, in the last parsha of the Torah, the very, very end of Deuteronomy, there's a verse that goes like this. The Torah that Moses commanded to us, that he communicated to us, it is an inheritance for the entire congregation of Jacob. Fine. So our sages tell us a very interesting thing. I think it's in the Talmud. The word Torah, so Torah means the Torah, right? But if you take the numerical value of the word Torah, it's 611. You could either trust me or you could do the math yourself, right? Tough is 400, Reish is 200, so you have 600, and then Vav and He, 6 and 5 is 11. 611. So, Torah, 611 mitzvahs we heard from Moses. What about the other two? The other two, we didn't hear through Moses. We heard it directly from God. Fine? Okay, so this is the story that happened at Sinai. God came. First, He spoke everything in one shot, in one word, one utterance. Then He repeated Himself by saying each one separately. The first two, we managed, whatever. The first two, we, we heard God, and then we said, okay, enough. You know what I'm saying? The rest of them, we heard through Moses. Here's the big question. Why did God have to say all ten in one utterance? What was the purpose of that? We didn't understand it anyway. Right? So what, what's the idea? God's just showing off? Yeah. God doesn't know. God doesn't show off. Not show off, but he had to show it's, it's not a human. It's a different level. Oh, that's what he had to prove? Splitting the sea wasn't enough for that, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, it says he had to prove that he's not just human. He's, he's, he's better than the humans. Ah, I don't, God doesn't have such a low self-esteem. He, you know, he, he's better than that. But obviously, there's a message here. There's a message for us to understand what these Ten Commandments are all about. What is Torah all about? What is Judaism about? In other words, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? What is my place in this world? We can all learn that from the fact. We can, all, we can learn all of these things from the fact that all Ten Commandments were uttered in one utterance in the beginning. The introduction to all of Torah is that all Ten Commandments are in one utterance. What's the idea here? So let's see. That was going to explain. That. We're going to go through several uh, snippets from talks from different Fibrangians and different uh, events to, to come out with, with a, very a very important and foundational clarity uh, in in the concept of of morality, basically, yeah. it's gonna have a it's it's, it's going to um, apply in many areas of life. Okay, the Ten Commandments begin with "I am God, your God," and conclude with "Do not covet." The sages state that all the Ten Commandments were first said simultaneously in one utterance, and then they were stated separately, one by one. There are different opinions about who made the individual restatement of the Ten Commandments. Some say God, others say Moses. Others say that the first two were restated by God and the remaining eight by Moses, right? As we, as we explained earlier. We need to explain the practical lesson we can learn from the original simultaneous statement of all the Ten Commandments. All right. Let's continue on page three. The Ten Commandments include both mitzvahs between man and God, and interpersonal mitzvot. This can be seen in the division of the Ten Commandments into two tablets. The first tablet contains the man-god mitzvot, and the second tablet contains the interpersonal mitzvot. Right? If you look, take the ten, split them up five and five. You know, you can ask, why did God have to give two tablets or you couldn't fit all ten on one tablet? No? How many scrolls do we have in the you know, in other words, when you talk about the Torah scroll, it's one scroll. What's the problem? Make one scroll. Why couldn't God fit all ten commandments on one tablet? What's the idea here? There's two separate tablets. Why? One tablet represents the mitzvahs that are between man and God, such as belief in God, not serving idols, Shabbos, honoring your parents. How is that between me and God? Why do I have to honor my parents? Because my parents are God's partners in my creation. 
which opens up a whole new understanding for the idea of kibbutz aim of respecting parents. It's a whole. Different, we're not going to get into that now. The point is, honoring parents is not an interpersonal. It's not an obligation you have to your parent. It's an obligation you have to God. Fine. So the, those are the first five are on one tablet. Those are the commandments. Those are like religious commandments, right? That we can use that term. This is religiosity is expressed in the first five on one tablet. So we've got the religious tablet. And then we have the next tablet. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, right? Don't covet, don't bear false witness. That's the ninth. What is that? Nothing religious about that. It's morality. Basic decency is in the last five, the second tablet. Before we continue, just a very fascinating thing. So when God engraved the Ten Commandments, five on one tablet, five on the other tablet, the Talmud tells us that the commandments filled up the entire tablet. Yeah? They filled them up. It's not like there was empty space around. It was filled up with the commandments. Now, if you look at the commandments, the first five are very wordy. There's a lot of words there. A lot, a lot of words. And all of that was crammed onto one tablet. The last five, very skimpy on the words. Very, very few words. Very simple. Don't kill, don't steal. (laughs) Very simple. So very few words. And those few words fill up the entire tablet. So how do you you fit a lot of words on... And the tablets were the same size. The tablets were exactly the same size. So, turns out that when you're looking at the two tablets, the, the religious one was very small font, smaller font. The moral one about decency was huge font. So if you're looking at the two tablets, what, what comes out to you quick? Don't kill, don't steal, don't, right? These things are very, very big. Anyway, just something to think about. Um, so you've got these 10 mitzvahs, Ten Commandments, and they're and they're given to us. In other words, God's gift to us is He gives us these two tablets with five on one and five on the other. And it's a very clear distinction. The difference between these the first five are relig- religiosity, and the second five are decency. Yeah. And the Torah does recognize that there are mitzvahs that are been Adam Lamokim between the person and God. Religious, and there are mitzvahs that have been adam between man to, to friend, to peers, between peers. Who gains most by the fact that you don't murder, you don't steal, don't commit adultery? You have a normal functioning society. It has nothing to do with being religious or not, seemingly, right? And yet, even though you have a clear set, a distinction between the first five and the last five, all ten were uttered in one utterance. Can't separate them. There's no such thing as religious Judaism and decent Judaism. There's no such thing as religious, uh, how do you say, relationship with God and decent relationship with God. No, no, no. It's one word. It's one utterance. It's one thing. That's how the Arabic continues. Nevertheless, all the Ten Commandments were stated simultaneously. This is in order to emphasize that essentially they are all one unit. And therefore, even the interpersonal mitzvot need to be observed because the divine because of divine command, just as we observe the man-god mitzvot. Why don't I kill? Why don't I steal? Why don't I commit adultery? Because God said don't. Not because I figured out philosophically why it's not a good thing to do. Seemingly, it is possible for a person to conduct themselves honestly and fairly with their fellows without bringing God into the picture. However, we are told that all of the Ten Commandments were stated simultaneously as an indivisible unit from one source. God commanded us to observe all of the mitzvot, but gave us free choice and asked us to choose life, referring to the Torah of life and the mitzvot, about which the verse states, and you shall live with them. Right? So he gives us a set of commandments and he gives us free choice either to choose to follow the commandments or to ignore them. And he says, do me a favor. I'm empowering you. I'm giving you the... Please keep the commandments. As a result, the only way to guarantee observance of the interpersonal mitzvot is by remembering that they are God's command. That I am God your Lord is the one who commanded do not covet. The only way to ensure that we should be able 
to not covet. We should be able not to murder. We should be able to hold the line is only if we remember the very beginning, the very first mitzvah, which is, I am God, your God. The next mitzvah, don't survive, don't survive idols. They're all connected. If one understands the reason why one is dependent on the other, that's certainly good. But even if one does not understand the connection, this doesn't change the fact that they were all given simultaneously. This is kind of like, you know, going back to the original point that he made. He said, the Chizkuni writes, it was said in one shot. But the Jews didn't understand. And then it had to be explained to them, right? The Rebbe's pointing out and saying, look, we're telling you a fact here. God comes and says all Ten Commandments, which include the loftiest spiritual, religious ideas of believing in God, keeping Shabbos and things like that, and the most simplistic, seemingly more decent concept of don't covet, don't kill, don't murder, right? Basic ideas, basic decency. It's all in one utterance. You should know, they're all interconnected. You don't understand how? This is the fact. This is the only way you'll be able to hold the line. But now that we're, we're going to start to kind of unpack this idea here. Let's continue the Rebbe's words. In previous generations, it may have been possible to debate whether living a moral life is only possible when it is based on the fact that this is the will of God, the creator of the world. One could try to build a case that it is possible for humans to construct their own moral code for interpersonal conduct based on logic and philosophical analysis. But in our generation, reality has shown that this is not viable. We observe the nation that prided itself with its sophistication in logic, science, philosophy, and morality. This nation prided itself with its members who spent decades devoted to academic studies, writing books on these topics, and raising generations of students. Yet this very same nation displayed the most, uh, the most appalling lack of morality possible. We witness this in our generation. May such events never be repeated, God forbid. Can anyone guess what the Rebbe is referring to? The Holocaust. Holocaust. Yeah, Germany. Germany was the most sophisticated, well-educated country. You know, there were a people, a people to be proud of. And yet, uh, the Holocaust happened. As someone pointed out that uh, yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? So... The going narrative about Holocaust Remembrance Day is remembering what they did to us, right? But we're the victims of a terrible massacre, a terrible, I mean, terrible genocide. And it's true. There's the, that's true. But the Rebbe usually would not focus on that. The Rebbe would focus on a different issue and say, how, how in the world did that happen? How, how did that happen? Oh, we're not talking here about, about cannibals that came out of caves and butchered six million people. You're talking here about the most sophisticated, educated people coming out of the universities and going out and building gas chambers, death camps, murdering millions. Not just six million Jews, many more millions of human beings. How'd that happen? How does that work? And the answer is very simple. And the Rebbe is going to explain that the Rebbe himself studied in Germany. He, he saw what was going on, but we'll see that. Some wish to portray this as the doing of one deranged man who forced his people to assist him. This is false. All those who were in that country, myself among them, saw the great enthusiasm with which the man was received by his nation. These supposed advocates of morality expressed their hope that this man would realize their dream of Deutschland über alles. Germany above all. I read somewhere that one, there was a, one, one of these uh, morality professors, he, was, uh, he became a, a, a strong supporter of uh, Hitler. May God obliterate his name. So someone asked him, how could you follow him? He said, don't you see his fingers? His fingers are so beautiful. And this guy was like, you know, from the, from the most sophisticated, intellectual, you know. No. They all followed him. They all followed him. Yeah, you're going to say there were some righteous Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. In a nation of 80 million, how many of them are on the wall in Yad Vashem? Most of them aren't Germans, right? Most of them are Gentiles from other countries, from the German nation. And you're talking here, you're not talking about barbarians or cannibals. They weren't Martians. They weren't monsters. Human beings who lived lives, were well-educated, yeah, you had the uneducated folk. There was officers, hundreds of, tens of thousands of officers, 
people that were coming up with ideas of how to do things, how to, you know, how do you say, inflame the masses. How did this happen? The Rebbe says, clear cut. Because it was separated from God. Their whole moral code was based on a human convention. And when it's based on human convention, you know what the, you know what the human could be. The, the most terrible, barbaric cannibal out there. 80 million people lived in that country, right? At the bottom of page four. Many of them well-educated people. How could they be capable of such cruel conduct? The reason is that surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me. Oh, the Rebbe is, <laughs> the Rebbe is um, invoking a story of Abraham. So, Avram, you know, let's go to source two and then we'll come back. So, Avram... Abraham lives in the land of Canaan, and there's a there's a famine. Enemy anyway, has to not it wasn't because of the famine actually. Um, he moves to a place called Gerar to the area of the Philistines after the after the city of Zom was destroyed. Long story, but anyway, the point is that he um, that he presents his wife Sarah as a sister, and Avimelech catches wind of it. Whatever he and he take uh, Avimelech takes Sarah. And God comes to him in a dream and he says, you took a woman who was, who was married and you're going to die as a result. And Abimelech starts to play a whole game, you know, that, that he's a moral person. He didn't know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so let's read source number two. Abraham said about Sarah's wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gwar, sent and took Sarah. He kidnapped her. He took her. God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. And he said to him, behold, you are going to die because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a married woman. Avimelech said to Abraham, yeah, so we're skipping a bunch of words here, and then when Avimelech woke up and he, he, he summoned for Abraham, he says, what did you see that you did this thing? In other words, why did you fool me? Why did you present your wife as your sister and not as your wife? Avimelech, Avram said, for I said, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Avram says like this, there's a direct line between belief in God and do not kill. Because you guys are heathens, you're idol worshippers, you don't believe in God, when you're going to find out that this beautiful woman is my wife, you're going to kill me in order to take her. Why would we do such a thing? Because you're godless. And when you're godless, you're capable of everything and anything. So going back to the Rebbe's words here, right? The Rebbe's talking about Germany in the 1930s, Right? There was 80 million people there. How could they allow such a thing? The reason is that surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me. Murder is an interpersonal matter. And fear of God is a man-God matter, right? Murder is a decency question. Belief in God is a religious question, right? Nevertheless, the verse links them, stating that interpersonal conduct, decency, moral decency, is determined by one's man-God conduct. You can't separate the two. They're two separate tablets, true, but they're all said in one utterance. They're all interconnected. Let's continue the, uh, towards the bottom of page five, second to last paragraph. In order to guarantee moral and upright interpersonal conduct, we must base it on fulfilling the will of God, the creator and master of the universe, leader of the universe, master of the universe. Oh, so now, now here's another question. So if so, if so, you can ask the following question. Why should we go and teach people don't murder, don't steal, give charity, be decent, etc.? Let's first teach them about God, and only then we can teach them don't kill, don't, don't, don't steal. Yeah? The fact that all Ten Commandments are in one utterance goes both ways. Let's see here. This is the lesson we can learn from the statement of all the Ten Commandments simultaneously. It is also evident in the fact that the Ten Commandments begin with I am God your Lord as the order within Torah also teaches us Torah lessons. The process of accepting the Torah begins with accepting the concept of I am God your Lord. This acceptance leads naturally to do not bear God's name in vain, honor your parents, and all the way to do not covet. After accepting the Torah, we are instructed, right, so, so in other words, believing in God is foundational, right? However, after accepting the Torah, we are instructed, one should always study Torah and observe mitzvot, even if it is not for their own sake. The, the Hebrew word here is even if it's not lishma. Lishma means you're learning Torah, you're doing mitzvahs for the highest ideals possible. You're doing it altruistically. But our sages tell us, 
Learn Torah and do mitzvahs, even if you're not doing it altruistically, even if you're doing it for other reasons. So how does this apply to this conversation here? In our case, even if a person observes the interpersonal mitzvot with the ulterior motive of gaining honor, the bottom line is that mitzvah is still being observed. So let's say you come to someone and you say, you know what, give charity. I have an opportunity for you to give charity, to do something positive, etc. The person says, what will I gain from it? Say, I'll put your name on the wall. I'll give you a plaque. Oh, you'll give me a plaque. Everyone's going to see it forever. I'm going to give charity, right? Someone can come and say, that, that's charity. And the answer is, yeah, give charity. Give charity for that reason. Give it. Why? Ultimately, the reason we are told to observe mitzvot, even if not for their own sake, is because from observance not for their own sake, one will arrive at the observance for their own sake, observance of the mitzvot because they are God's will. If you do a mitzvah, it will bring you to the right conclusions. In other words, in other words, here's our little trick. I'm sharing with you our little trick. Someone comes and says, I don't believe in God. What's my answer? I have two ways that I can respond to that. One way I can respond to it is, you don't believe in God? Come on. Aren't you an intellectual? Let me go and prove it to you. And we'll sit down and we'll hack a all from day to night. I'll prove to you that there's a God. Yeah? I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to waste my time. You know what I will do? I said, no. So you don't believe in God? No. So you put on tefillin today? No. Why don't you? Let's put on tefillin. What do you mean? I don't believe in God. So what? So what? Do me a favor. Put on tefillin. Why not? I'll show you how to do it. And I put... What? I'm saying... What's going to happen now? He's going to start believing in God? Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. When a Jew puts on tefillin, when a Jew gives charity, a Jew lights Shabbos candles, doing things, even if you don't have the right intentions, the right beliefs, you claim to have a different belief, don't worry about it. Doing the right thing will pull you in the right direction. As our sages say, do the mitzvahs, Learn Torah, even if it's not for the right for, for the right reasons, because that will eventually bring you to the right place. The reason it is certain, so here we're going to come full circle. The reason it is certain that observance of mitzvot, not for their own sake, will lead to observance for their own sake is because all of the Ten Commandments were stated simultaneously. Aha! In other words, the fact that do not murder was said in the same utterance as I am God, your God, tells me this. That if a person had an opportunity to murder, the inclination to murder, the desire and the passion to murder, but then held themselves back from murdering, why? Whatever. It doesn't matter why. He didn't want to be caught by the police. Whatever. But if they held themselves back from murder, oh, oh, very good. That's going to bring us to belief in God. A person held himself back from stealing, excellent. That's eventually going to bring you to belief in God. Since the interpersonal mitzvot are inextricably linked with I am God your Lord, observing them will certainly eventually lead to recognizing the truth that even do not murder and do not covet are dependent on I am God your Lord, the commander of the mitzvot. I think that's actually even more profound than the first point. The first point that we learn from the fact that they're uttered in one utterance is the only way to sustain a decent moral lifestyle is if it's predicated, if it's based on belief in God. Yes, that's true, and we prove that from Germany. We prove that from the Holocaust. Okay. But then we have the flip side. The best way to get someone to recognize and discover the truth of God is through keeping even the simplest interpersonal mitzvot of do not murder, do not steal. In other words, be a decent person even if you don't believe in God because being a decent person, being honest, being charitable, that will get you to the right place. All right, that's the first, the first part. Let's go to part number seven. So in 1963... There was a group of college students that had the opportunity to meet the Rebbe. I don't know how many students it was. It was, it was, like, a, it was like a Jewish student group. I think it was a Hillel group from one of the, I think it was a college in New York, in Manhattan or something, one of the universities. 
So they came in together with one or two rabbis, and they, the rabbi spoke to them, and the rabbi took questions. The, the students asked a lot of different, very fascinating, I mean, a whole spectrum of stuff. You know, they asked about dating, they asked about all different things. So here is one of the questions. Uh, page 7, we'll read through this. Uh, actually, the, the conversation originally was in English. So I don't know if this is the original English uh, transcript of the conversation, but anyway. So the student asked like this. The students have two or three problems that they would like to discuss. The Rebbe says, they only have two or three. That would be quite good. <laughs> they have a room full of students. I'm sure you'd have many more of those questions. So here's one of the questions. Why can one not better himself without keeping kosher and the Jewish holidays through good ethical practices? Right? Why can't someone be decent without being religious? That's basically what he asked. So the Rebbe says like this, to illustrate my point, it is the same as a human body, which has many limbs and members. You can do something to better every part, and you can restrict medical care to another part. You can observe only the rules applying to health of the hands, but not the feet, or only the rules for health of the respiratory organs, and not the digestive organs. There may be good results to this part, but not to all parts. But in the long run, since all of the limbs are connected, the condition of one influences all the others. If something is good for one part, it is ultimately good for the other part as well. And if it is not, in other words, if it's detrimental for one part, it influences the others in the wrong direction. If you are observing a certain part of the 613 mitzvot, you are doing a good job. However, this does not exempt you from observing the others. Even more so, not observing one <clears throat> disturbs also that category which is observed. So the student probed a bit and he said, Do you say that if one does not keep Shabbos, he cannot keep the laws of ethics? So, the Rebbe replied, I cannot deny the fact that many people keep the ethics and not Shabbos, and many observe Shabbos, but not the ethics. Fact, right? Each has its own merits and cannot be substituted. But all are connected. Each brings another. A good deed brings another good deed, and by not observing one, a bad deed causes another bad deed. So it's, it's not like... You know, now the Rebbe, is, the Rebbe goes further. The Rebbe brings an interesting uh, proof from the from Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot is called Ethics of Our Fathers. Now, by, by way of introduction, Pirkei Avot is a tractate of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the first, um, the first written document, the first written document of Jewish tradition, right? So you have the Tanakh, you have the Bible, the five books of Moses, and then the prophets, and the writings. And then about a, uh, about 800, I don't know exactly, about 700 years after the, the Tanakh was complete. So in addition to, to the, the written Torah, the, you know, the five books of Moses, which is God's communication to Moses, which was recorded in writing, but which is very skimpy on a lot of details, the rest of Torah, in other words, most of Jewish law, was transmitted through tradition, word of mouth. In other words, from Moses heard from God, and he transmitted it to the Jewish people. And this body of tradition, this Torah Shabbat Peh, was communicated from generation to generation. The first time that it was actually recorded in, official, uh, in an official book, an official um, document, was the Mishnah through Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, about 200 years after the destruction of the Second Holy Temple. Now, the Mishnah is essentially it's a it's it's a it's a body of Jewish law, and there's uh, six uh, parts to it. So in the fourth part, which is called the part of, of damages and nezikin, that deals with most of you know, uh, I say, most laws that have to do with money or with behavior and things like that. So towards the end, I believe the very last tractate of it is Perkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. There's no law in ethics of our fathers. It's just teaching us how to live a moral and ethical life. In other words, sometimes with the law, you could totally corrupt the law. So you have to have ethics, right? Okay. You know, lawyers have to, have to go through classes about ethics. Doctors, everyone has to go through ethics. The, way the ethics board, etc. In other words, when, you just, when you're just a stickler for the rules, you could be uh, a real thief. Anyway... So um, let's continue. The Rebbe, the Rebbe kind of uh, tells us a very fascinating lesson from the way ethics of our fathers is written. Many study the ethics of our fathers, which has a curious beginning. 
It is one of the tractates of the section of damages, the fourth of the six sections of the Talmud, and in that section it is one of the last. Yet the beginning of the ethics of our fathers tells us that Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai and gave it to Joshua, and so it was passed on to our times. This statement seemingly belongs at the beginning of the entire oral Torah, at the beginning of the Tractate of Blessings, which is the beginning of the Mishnah, the beginning of the Talmud, to tell us that all of the rulings of the oral Torah were given on Mount Sinai. Right? Look at source number three. This is the very first Mishnah of Ethics of Our Fathers. Moses received the Torah at Sinai. From who? From God, obviously, right? So he received it from God at Sinai and passed it on to Joshua. And Joshua passed it on to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. By the way, if you want to say that that this Mishnah is teaching us history, it's a very bad, bad history lesson, okay? Very vague. Who are the elders? Who are the prophets? <laughs> What's going on over here, right? So it's obviously not a history lesson. It's obviously giving us the, the, the how do you say it's framing for us the book, this tractate of ethics of our fathers. What is it? Nevertheless, we find this statement that ethics of our fathers with the ethical rules. For it is not necessary for putting oh, so like this. It is not necessary for putting on tefillin, which can be done without believing. Right? Why does it speak about in the very first tractate of the very first tractate of of uh, the Talmud? Opens up with religious laws, recital of the Shema, prayer, all of these different things, right? Um, in order for a Jew to put on tefillin, do the, does the Jew have to understand that these are God's rules and this and that? To put on tefillin, you just have to have an arm and a head. That's all you need. Okay? That's it. That's all you need. And a rabbi that's going to be nice enough to show you how to wrap it around. That's all you need in order to do the mitzvah. No one has to frame it for you. You put it on, you know that this is a mitzvah, we're done. We're, we're, we're in good hands. Um, yeah, let's continue there. Rabbi's words, there's no condition that one must know the reason for fulfilling the commandment of tefillin. But, if one is ready to keep the moral laws all his life, in other words, a person wants to become a moral person, an ethical person, he wants to learn ethics of our fathers, they cannot be based only on human reasoning and consulting friends. For then, one can deviate and stretch until they completely distort the mitzvah. From an ethical rule, you can make a sin, and from a sin, an ethical rule. And therefore, we find this introduction, which was expressly meant to introduce the tractate, which contains ethical values. The Rebbe is still speaking to students here. To our sorrow in our era and generation, we all saw this distortion take place in Germany. I studied in Germany for many years before Hitler. And people in influential circles always quoted from Kant, Goth, did I say that right? Uh, and the ethical philosophers. They made no move without a footnote with a book and page number. Then Hitler came to power with a new theory and philosophy. And an overwhelming majority of the people, in my opinion, 99% were on his side. Not after rejecting Goth, Kant, but continuing to accept them, and they joined Hitler in all his actions, even the massacre of people. This is an illustration of an ethical system based on philosophical theories and human reasoning without a solid basis, which will not change. The only solid basis that is never changeable is God. If you accept decency as part and parcel of dogmatic religious belief, then decency will hold. The word dogma doesn't sound good, right? But if you accept decency as God, the reason why I don't kill, the reason why I don't steal, the reason why I don't commit adultery, the reason why I must behave with honesty and integrity and be charitable, etc., is because God said so. And when it's because God said so, because there's a God, and I believe in that God, and I know that God is relevant and sees everything I do, and, and, and has, has a purpose and everything, whatever, everything you can say about God, then the decent lifestyle will hold. It will be sustainable for the individual and for the community, for the entire nation. Let's, uh, let's continue on here on page 11. Um, so you'll say, okay, so the Ten Commandments were given just to, uh, to the Jewish people, right? Proof to that. What's the fourth of the Ten Commandments? Shabbos. Only Jews are commanded to keep Shabbos. No one else. Right? By the way, the Ten Commandments 
What's the what's the first mitzvah? I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. Quite exclusive, actually. Who did God take out of Egypt? Only the Jews, no one else, right? So this construct of the Ten Commandments themselves are, are very, very Jewish, right? So what about the rest of the world? The, Re- the Rebbe is bemoaning Germany, right? <clears throat> but what, what about them? Where should they know better? So Amit said, yeah, it's our job. Where do we see that it's our job? Source number four, Maimonides, in the very, very last book of his Mishnah Terry, says the following. He says that there are seven laws for Noyach, for, for the seven laws for all the Jewish people. I'm sorry. There are seven laws, seven mitzvahs that are relevant for all of the nations of the world, and they were communicated to Moses at Sinai together with all the 613 mitzvot. And it's our job, it's our obligation to bring this awareness to the entire world. And Maimonides says the following, anyone who accepts upon himself the fulfillment of these seven mitzvot and, it's, and is precise in their observance is considered one of the pious among the Gentiles and will merit a share in the world to come. You don't need to be Jewish in order to have a relationship with God or to even merit a portion of the world to come. There's no, there's, there's no need for it at all. But... Every single person in the world, every human being, has these seven laws. And if you're precise in keeping them, you will merit a share in the world to come. And then the Rambam continues and says, this applies only when he accepts them and fulfills them because God commanded them in the Torah and informed us through Moses, our teacher, that Noah's descendants had been commanded to fulfill them previously. However, if he fulfills them out of intellectual conviction, he is not one of the pious among the Gentiles, nor of their wise men. There's an important thing. Just like when it comes to the Ten Commandments, right? We say that they're so inter, they're so connected. I am God, your God, and do not covet are one of the same. They're all part of the same idea, and they can't be separated. The same thing is true about the seven Noahide laws. They can't just keep it and go, oh, this is a great moral code. Let's just keep it because it makes sense. No, it has to be predicated on belief in God. So page 11, towards the bottom, our role as Jews is to endeavor that every place in the world should conduct itself with justice and kindness. This means observing the seven mitzvot for all of mankind, about which Maimonides rules, Moses relate to us God's command to compel all of the inhabitants of the world to accept the commandments given to Noah's descendants. We need to work towards the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Maimonides at the very end, he describes the messianic era, an era of peace, world peace. Can you imagine such a thing? The world be- How is that possible? Because then, the entire world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Everyone's going to be busy understanding and appreciating godliness, God, God himself. So we need to work towards that to the extent possible in our time. This means that every corner of the world should be filled with the knowledge of God. We've got to do what Abraham did, right? Abraham was a missionary. He had a mission to bring the awareness of God to the entire world. This is our job. This is our job to bring this awareness everywhere. How to do it? Learn from Abraham. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a preacher. He helped people, gave them food and drink. He was hospitality. His hospitality was legendary. But with it came a very profound message of an awareness of God. Page 12. The only way to guarantee just and kind conduct and eradicate theft and other undesirable acts is to fill the world with the knowledge of God, belief and faith in the creator and master of the world. Just and kind conduct requires a person to forgive their honor and overcome jealousy and temptation. This will prevent them from infringing on each other's rights and even avoiding negative gossip about others, even if it is true. This will cause them to act in the long-term interests of civilization throughout the entire day and their entire lives. All of this is only possible if it is based on a commitment to fulfilling the will of God, the Creator and Master of the world. You know, I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, we have we have a lot of ground to cover. I just want to point out, I've had multiple uh, interactions with people who have asked me, "What is God?" Right? And just simply, I show them what my, how Maimonides describes God. No, it's not talking about some old man with a long white beard, you know, sending gifts or or striking people with with lightning. This is this is hogwash. Maimonides describes what God is. The essence of all existence the source of all existence, the canvas upon which everything exists, right? Whatever. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. And then like, oh yeah, that, that I can understand. That I can accept. Can, we, can you imagine if we somehow take this very basic, straightforward, 
interpretation or articulation of what God is and get it all over the world. So you can go back to the original point that we made. There's two ways I can go about it. Either you can go around and start talking about God and trying to convince everyone and trying to get this message to them, or you can get them to start doing mitzvot. The positive mitzvah for a non-Jew is tzedakah. That is a positive mitzvah for them. If you get a, a, any person to start doing tzedakah, not to kill, not to steal, all these different things, that's going to bring them to the awareness of God. Just like we said, that even if someone does a mitzvah without having the proper intentions or having the right belief system, it's eventually going to bring them to that belief system. Why? Because these acts of goodness and kindness, these acts of morality and decency are integrally, in, intricately, intrinsically connected to I am God, your God. Um, this is all the more true when talking of humanity in general. A just and moral world can only be guaranteed when it is based on the com- on commitment to the creator and master of the world, not any man-made system of ethics. The words of Maimonides we quoted earlier when he accepts them and fulfills them, <clears throat> not out of intellectual conviction, but because God commanded them in the Torah and informed us through Moses, we Jews are responsible for influencing the world in this direction. This is actually one of the reasons why the Rebbe like, so emphasized this idea that on the currency, in the Amer- on American currency, it says, in God we trust. It says we have to celebrate this concept. No matter how they interpret God, it doesn't matter. The fact that this is a part of the currency, this is a, a very profound illustration how how a nation is able to be a just and decent nation when it is based on faith in God. Let's continue here, page 13. The Ten Commandments combine two fundamentally different types of mitzvot. The first commandments express the deepest concepts of divine unity, while the last commandments include simple matters such as do not murder and do not steal, matters that are self-understood that, that are self-understood even for the simplest of minds. Here's another powerful concept. Um, The combination of the two categories of mitzvot and the Ten Commandments alludes to another unification achieved at the giving of the Torah. The higher realms will descend to the lower realms and the lower realms will ascend to the higher realms. So just briefly, I'll tell you, source number five tells us that before the giving of the Torah, it was impossible for any physical object to become holy. A pair of tefillin was not holy uh, you know, and you, you couldn't make it holy because holiness and physicality couldn't mix. When the Torah was given, the the divine world, godliness is able to permeate the physical, and the physical is able to be elevated. What does that mean in a more, uh, how do you say, uh, ideological or philosophical way? The higher realms, page fourteen. The higher realms, the commandments of I am God your Lord and you shall not have any gods in my presence should descend and impact the commandments of do not murder and do not steal. We must feel the foundation of the divine commandment, I am your God, even in the mitzvot that are self-understood by human logic. We should observe these mitzvot not just because they are logical necessities, but because they were commanded by I am your God. However, moreover, this should be the main reason for our observance of do not murder and do not steal. If we separate do not murder and do not steal from I am God your Lord and you shall not have any other gods in my presence and leave the former to the realm of human reason. In other words, if not stealing, not killing is about human uh, reason, we may be led astray by our selfish desires and completely distort them so much that we will consider a transgression to be a mitzvah. It will certainly be impossible to protect ourselves from the subtle forms of murder and stealing, which such as, you know, there's, there's murder, which is actually killing someone. Then there are certain ways you can actually kill someone without, they're still breathing, right? Their heart is still beating, they're, they're still breathing, they have a pulse, but you just kill them. How? By embarrassing them. That's one way of murder, embarrassing someone in public or just embarrassing in general. Or one of the ways to steal is if you mislead them. You give them bad advice and they go in a bad direction, etc. You just stole from them. But it's very subtle, right? So belief in God, only belief in God is going to protect us from holding the line to make sure we don't embarrass them, which is a subtle type of murder, that we don't mislead them, which is a subtle type of uh, uh, theft. And he gives an example. He says, when we hold our small finger close to our eyes, it can conceal the entire world around us because it is so close to our face. Similarly, with our self-love, we are so dear to ourselves that we can be blinded from seeing anything else, even intentional transgressions. 
even if it were possible to observe the interpersonal mitzvah with human logic alone, as Jews, it is our role to unite all of our actions, even the most simple ones, with I am your God. In other words, even if, you, even if you'll come up with a way of how to ensure that you don't steal only because of human logic, but come on, as a Jew, you have to harmonize everything in life. You have to harmonize your decency with your religiosity and vice versa. I am your God must be something we feel in everything we do. Even our most simple and logical actions need to be infused with divine awareness. This is evident in the teaching of our sages. Had the Torah not been given, God forbid, we would learn the requirement of modesty from a cat. You say that a cat doesn't, uh, you know, a dog, you go walking the dog, you have to go with a bag. Why? It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mind doing anything on the, on the street. My understanding is that the cat specifically looks for like a sand where it could do its stuff and it covers it up. A cat is modest. So our sages tell us, if we would not be taught modesty in the Torah, we would learn modesty from a cat. We would look, we would observe the cat and say, hey, don't just go out in the street. It doesn't work that way. Go and find a, a private, uh, provide privacy, and that's it for your own for your own self-respect, for other people's self-respect, right? Without the Torah, we would learn our system of ethics from animals. Because without the Torah, we wouldn't be able uh, because without the Torah, we wouldn't be able to connect our lowly mundane affairs with godliness. In other words, if we didn't have Torah, the reason why we wouldn't have a mitzvah, do not kill, do not steal, is because we would learn how to sustain a normal, how do you say, a normal humanity, at least to an extent. We can learn it on our own. The problem is it won't be connected to God. It would come from animals, right? Since the Torah was given and we have the ability to connect the higher and lower realms, even those positive traits that animals also possess should be infused with holiness and observed as God's commandments with a sense of submission to divine authority. So that means that the higher realms are coming down to the lower realms, right? Even those things that we already have here on our own, we're learning it from the animal kingdom. God's there. Then there's the idea that the lower realms may ascend to the higher realms. This means that even people, now this, is, this is a great way to end off. Even people who need to be directly commanded by God at the awe-inspiring event of the giving of the Torah, not to murder and steal, must ascend to the higher realms. Even such people are capable of divine awareness and knowledge, even though divine knowledge is the loftiest of all forms of wisdom. Think about this for a moment. You have a shmerel. Yeah, you have a guy, a yukul. He's standing over there. And this guy is the ganev of the town. He's the ganev of the Jewish people. He's a thief. Moses coming to him and saying, hey, listen up. Listen up. Don't steal. It's not good. It's terrible. He's not impressed. He's not impressed. The only one that convinced him don't steal is that you have millions of Jews gathered around the mountain. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's smoke. There's fire. And God is speaking directly. Is Oh, oh God told me I won't steal. You know, you know what type of shmendrik this guy is? What type of lowlife this guy? He needs God to tell him not to steal. His parents weren't good enough. The teacher wasn't good enough. Moses wasn't good enough. <laughs> the police aren't good enough. Doesn't work. The guy that cut the maniac. He, boom, boom, boom. He's, he's stealing. No problem. God has to come and tell him, do not steal. This Shmendrick, you'll think, hey, he's not he doesn't have a, he's not capable of understanding the deepest concepts of God, the loftiest ideas of God. Well, guess what? In the same message that God had to come down into this world and tell this lowlife, do not steal, in that very same communique. God told him, I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt, you shouldn't have any other idols, and all of the, the amazing and, and, and lofty ideas that are communicated in those religious commandments. In other words, everything is interconnected. Our decency has to be predicated on our religiosity. Our religiosity also has to you know, have the decency involved as well. And the highest people have to be involved in the lowest of issues, most mundane issues. And the most mundane and lowest people have to be elevated and and invited and welcomed into understanding and and gaining an appreciation for the loftiest and the highest ideals. And this all happened, my friends, at the giving of the Torah. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, five on one tablet, five on the other, religious ones on one, 
decent ones on the other one. And he started off and he said in one utterance, all ten. To tell us, God is everywhere, everything is God, and every part of our life has to be harmonized in the belief of God and in the observance of all of the mitzvot, even the most simplest and most mundane mitzvah like, do not covet. And with that, we will end off today. I'm sorry we went a little bit over time, but I'm sure you will forgive me. Shukrach.